1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clobus, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Jane Little Botkin, author of the book, The Girl Who Dared to Defy, Jane Street and the Rebel Maids of Denver. Jane, welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Thank you. Glad to be here.
1: Oh, well, we're glad to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
0: Well, I am late in getting into the game of writing. I've um, always been interested in history. I was a a senior English teacher for 30 years, and I retired back in 2008. So I've been at this for 13 years. Um, I started writing a book. I actually did write a book uh, at the time of my retirement, Frank Little and the IWW, The Blood That Stained an American Family. And I did that one because Frank Little is actually my, my great grand uncle, and he was hanged in Butte, Montana in 1917, and uh, his death literally shut down the nation's industries at a time when they were needing everything for the war effort for World War One, and this was during the Red Scare. And so I did it to satisfy some information with our family. Um, the information took me almost 10 years to collect. I didn't get the book out until 2017, and it did really well, and it's, it's, it's quite a read. And when I was doing that book, I found out that Frank had helped an organizer named Jane Street and I was just really curious because other than Elizabeth Gurley Flynn there weren't very many women uh, in the IWW that is the industrial workers of the world. It didn't seem like there were very many leaders at least and so I wanted to know more. So as I researched for Frank Little I was also researching on Jane Street to see what I could find Um, and so that just came got me going on the next book. Um, I lived in Texas, in the hill country of Texas, part-time, and part-time in the the mountains of New Mexico, where I can write in peace. And um, I'm looking forward to some more projects that I have coming along. And I absolutely love this. I love writing. I love the people I meet. And it's addicting. The history is addicting.
1: What was it that attracted you to uh, Jane Street's story in particular? You mentioned you came across her with Frank Little, and, and the fact that, and, and I think that's one of the things that comes across in your book is how even the the the, the people in the IWW didn't know how to deal with, with you know women in their organization. But what was that led you to decide that uh, there was uh, that was there was something there that you could turn into a book?
0: Well, first of all, I, I was interested in telling a woman's story. Um, you know, I, we're we're getting more women's stories out there. But her story was quite similar to my grandmother's, and I had just recently discovered that my grandmother, who was Scandinavian, she was a uh, first American, first immigration—I'm sorry, first generation immigrant—and um, was raised, born and raised in Denver. Uh, was uh, orphaned in 1913 in a mining camp, at, uh, the coal mining camp of Louisville, where the coal wars were happening in Colorado. And she was orphaned and whisked away back to Iowa where some relatives lived. And she was married off when she was 15 years old to a 32-year-old Norwegian man. She ran away and she ended up in in a mansion working as a domestic in Boulder, Colorado. And I thought that was just fascinating. And it was at the very same time that I saw where Jane Street was organizing in Denver. And one of the things I've done with, all of my research and all of the projects I intend to do and am doing, I always there's a personal connection. I'm, I'm extremely interested because it's either a direct historical connection with my family or it's on the periphery. And, I, and so that's how I got into Jane Street. Um, I, the more I looked, uh, the more I thought no one's told this story. All they had was one letter that's called the Elmer Brews letter that was discovered in 1976 in, the, in a, the National Archives, it was just buried in the bowels of the Nar- National Archives, and it was just, her voice was just phenomenal, and she's telling how she's organizing these maids, and what she's going through, and I just wanted to find out more, and so I started. And um, when I, I'm very, very good at Bureau of Investigation files, these are the old FBI files, they call them the German files, because in World War One. Everybody was an enemy of America. If they disagreed with what was going on, they considered that they were in cahoots with the Germans and particularly the industrial workers of the world. And so I found her dossier. And from that, I went on and I found her family members. I found so much more. What was out there, the only thing I began with was that she was a maid herself who had organized a a maid rebellion in Denver, Colorado. That's all I had to go on until I found that letter. And the more I found, the more fascinated I, I got. Uh, there is a particular journalist. His name is David D. Kirkpatrick. He's actually a Pulitzer Prize winner this last year. He's an uh, international correspondent. He had written his thesis in the 90s at Princeton on Jane Street. And so he pr- provided a little bit more information, but he just had newspaper stories, really, and maybe some other Again, outwardly, his, historical information about women at that time. So when I got that, I really started looking more, and then I found her family. And when I found her her family and her grandson was still alive and she had raised her grandson, I hit a jackpot. And so it was just a great story to start putting together, and that's how I came about to do it.
1: I mean, it is such a fascinating story. And one of the things that fascinated me when I was reading your book is the intersection that takes place. Where This is uh, about, oh, yeah. you know, uh, labor in the West, this is about the, the status of women in the West, this is about the status of women in the labor movement. this is America at a time of enormous conflict and yet at the heart of all this uh, the, the the you know the, the focal point of it all is Jane Street. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us a bit about her early years, her family and, and what was it that, that ultimately brought her to Denver in the 19 uh, teens.
0: She was from Indiana originally. She actually got her, her early education there. She graduated from high school. Um, I found out she, she, got, she became trained as a stenographer. And I think they probably had, you know, like evening classes or maybe just a special course. It wasn't anything in particular because, you know, even when I was in high school, girls were learning uh, shorthand and typing and all of that sort of thing. And so she actually became a stenographer Her mother was a very depressed person, and she left the family and went to Arkansas, probably because of the springs, the hot springs there. And as soon as Jane graduated, she and her father joined her mother in Arkansas. And so the story really takes off from there. She had an older sister who was a cooch dancer. Um, She was a burlesque dancer. The family did not know that. Uh, (laughs) So I have this feeling the girl's because the mother was so distracted i think the girls made decisions that maybe weren't exactly considered appropriate at the time <laughs> and so and i have been asked uh, how was it that she would Jane would travel by herself to even go west which in itself is quite something and and i think about this even with my own grandmother who actually left denver when she was 18 years old and traveled to drumright oklahoma by herself so she knew that it was all full of men in an oil camp, and she could get work. The, the upper class, the more elite families, those girls had chaperones, and they had rules of do's and do not's. And when you got down to families that were either middle class or lower class, women traveled because they had to, because they wanted to seek out something better, and Jane fell into that group. Her older sister um, wanted to go west, and it eventually, that's what drew Jane west. Jane West as well, but while they were in Arkansas, Jane um, meets a man named Herbert Bumpus, and she doesn't know him as Herbert Bumpus. She knows him as Jack Street, and he's a total fraud. And as we find out, you find out during the book, uh, he has a thing for young women. I mean, really young women. And he, she finally, uh, she got involved with him while her mother was distracted because her father died. She has a marriage. She has, loses a child while she's not even married, has another child, and then he marries her three weeks after, and he's married to another woman at the same time having a baby. And so when this happens, uh, Jane, that's when Jane cuts all ties with Arkansas. And her sister Grace has also had a bad experience, and Grace sees Vaudeville in California, and so the two girls leave. And that's why Jane goes to California. It was simply to seek a new start. And California was exciting at this time period, which was around 1905. Well, I'm sorry, actually, they were there in 1910. It was just an exciting time period in in the West, especially in California.
1: You have it's a fascinating story because you you have these you know independent women who are really doing the kind of things that you wouldn't you you don't think of women doing at that time, and how you find that. It, that though a lot of it is because you know, Jane comes across as a woman of considerable gifts that you, you she has stenographer skills which uh, as you pointed out you know a, a lot of women were trained with back then but but she used to gain employment and she but she also had as well this organizing ability which as you explained becomes mm-hmm. so important to this period in her life when she's a labor organizer.
0: Yeah, she was probably one of those people that was a list maker every morning. You know, made a list on what she was going to do that day and what she was going to get accomplished. She even made notes on her dreams. Uh, she'd wake up in the morning and she'd make a note about her dream and what she thought that meant. And she kept all these little pieces of paper. So she she didn't like any clutter, or if anything, if it was useless. But she, was, she had this analytical mind. She really thought things out, whereas her sister was the creative side, you know, and, and kind of loosey-goosey and went going her way. But Jane was not that way. And so the first thing she had to do was find a job. And she was a divorcee. And she kept the name because she had a child. She kept her the street name, even though that was not even the, a Jack Street's real name. But she kept it because of respectability. She had to have that. If she had gone looking for a job as a divorcee, she might not have been hired. And she was a young divorcee. Um, and she did. She, she, she got work. She had her own stenographer. Stand. She observed everything around her. She was in Sacramento, California, and there was great um, civil unrest going on because of all of these unemployed people coming uh, to work in California. There was an, uh, there, in Sacramento, in particular, in San Francisco, there was a the exposition. I think it was a Pan American exposition. Anyway, it was going on, or and she she saw these people coming to work, and there were no jobs for them. And this was the first time she saw where the city fathers would get the municipal authorities and they would uh, push back these men, these homeless men who were there by the hundreds, if not thousands. There was labor unrest going on in the hotels. She was working as a stenographer. She had a stand in a hotel. And there was unrest going on in, in there as well. There was a hotels union that had organized in the east. Uh, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn had been involved with that and Jane started following everything that Elizabeth Gurley Flynn did. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn was in front of newspapers in every city across America because she was a woman. She was a girl. And the, the newspaper men were just fascinated with her. So Jane was able to see that. She was a big newspaper reader. And so she followed along with that too. And so I think that the organizational skills developed. She developed her own system when she got ready to organize on her own.
1: So what was it that brought her to Denver and, 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 and led her to get involved with uh, labor organizing in, in, in that city?
0: Well, if anybody has ever driven um, going toward Denver and you have gone past Trinidad, generally you go, past, you go up and over the Raton Pass and you're heading toward Trinidad, you're going to see a sign on the left that says Walsenburg, Colorado. You'll generally see another sign that says the Ludlow site. It was a site of a massacre that occurred in April 1914. It was a watershed event for American labor history, in that finally Americans put down their papers after reading at it and said, this is wrong. There had been many other events where, Immigrant miners and their families had been persecuted. But in this case, it, what it was, was, it was the uh, copper, it was part of the copper wars again, not copper, excuse me, coal wars again. And uh, Rockefeller and his enterprises, J.D. Rockefeller Jr. and his enterprises owned the entities that, wore, that owned these mines and owned the railroads that came in and brought men in and out. And the workers had gone on strike. Uh, they wanted better conditions, and if you do the research on any mining conditions at this time period, um, from, the, from the mid-1880s say to 1917, you'll find out they're absolutely atrocious, the treatment of the people who worked during the Industrial Revolution. Uh, many of them were immigrants. They had come to get jobs. They'd come all the way across from Europe, uh, many of them straight to Butte, Uh, Because Butte was Butte America, they believed that's where you started. They started in in Colorado until they were escorted out and ended up in Arizona. Uh, In Ludlow, these people were mainly, they were people of, of color, many of them. They were Spaniards. They were Mexicans. They were Italians. They were Greeks. And when they went on strike, the the company decided that they couldn't live in the company housing anymore because they were on strike, and they kicked them out of the housing. In Colorado in April, there's still snow in many cases, and that was the case. So they set up a little tent hall. I, mean, I say little. There was well over 100 tents. There were, there were about 1,200 people living in these tents, families. Over 200, almost 300 were children, some of them babies, and they're living in these tents. And uh, Rockefeller, um, his company, uh, they organized, uh, the, the, they got the Colorado National Guard, which was made of many volunteers, just like National Guard is today. And many of these members of this National Guard were actually husbands and fathers in some of the elite families in Denver. And they came in, and they were the ones who um, were guarding these camps and watching what was going on. Now, the Colorado National Guard had a very sullied reputation. In 1903 and 1904, there had been, at that time, with the Western Federation of Miners, which ended up becoming the mining arm of the industrial workers of the world, um, there had been some events there where people were killed, mistreated. There was, uh, you were arrested with no reason and you were denied lawyers. I mean, it was just a very abusive Situation, and it was for the good of the country. Therefore, the militia, the National Guard, was allowed to behave the way they were. So basically, the, the Colorado National Guard was almost an arm of these mining companies, these these robber barons from that time period, Rockefeller being one. So he was displeased with them. They uh, brought a train in with his his train that he owned. They had a a Gatling gun, and they showed up one day, and they started shooting. And the people had dug, uh, in many cases, they had dug these these indentions, if not downright cellars underneath these tents, covered them with wood because they had already seen where people were shot through their tents. And if you laid down low or got underneath your tent, at least you wouldn't get shot by these soldiers coming in and firing wantonly or with deliberate intent to kill you. And so at Ludlow, um, when it's, I actually opened the book with Ludlow because there were 13 people killed, two mothers and 11 children, who went into one of these cellars underneath a tent. And then the soldiers, they didn't get shot, but the soldiers went tent by tent, even the ones flying American flags, and they torched them. And so the, the, the people that were hiding in this particular tent, number 58, they burned and they asphyxiated. And this made horrific news. I mean, it, it, it just, it got to everybody in the country. And Rockefeller had some explaining to do, and he kept trying to deny and trying to take no responsibility, but that didn't work. This one pretty much stuck to him. And Jane read about this. And she's, you know, everybody's up in, up in arms. She was a, she really enjoyed being a mother. And she had a child of her own, and it you know it wasn't just other mothers; it profoundly affected Jane. And then on top of this, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn is going around the country, and she is lect- giving these lectures, and in one and she's writing um, so much about these events, what happened. And she happened to write uh, an essay that went into uh, Industrial Worker, which was the uh, IWW, one of the IWW's publications. And she wrote in there that something to the effect that the, the lady of the house has absolutely nothing in common with the, the maid in the kitchen. And she was talking about Ludlow and how all mothers and daughters and sisters, it didn't matter what status you were on, you should exclaim and scream loudly about this. And that, I think, clicked. That just resonated with Jane. And so for some reason, if this has to be the reason we have decided, she focused on that. And she just decided she was going to punish those mistresses on Capitol Hill, which is the, was the elite neighborhood in Denver, whose husbands were part of that National Guard. In all fairness, many of those men had already been called back. The um, Commander, however, his name was, uh, he was a Brigadier General Chase was the last name. He was their ophthalmologist. in, in He was very well-known, and he was the leader of this when this happened. And then the, so what they did to replace those men who went back, they hired um, thugs. Generally, they were people like Pinkertons or Teal or Burns detectives, uh, these other thugs who went in and had no qualms about killing people or hurting people. And so uh, Jane had already become radicalized. As she worked at that hotel, the IWW um, had started street speaking, soapboxing, and she started listening. She started reading everything about Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, and the girls made this decision. Um, Her sister Grace had a job, lost it, and so they knew they had to go someplace else, and they decided on a plan. Grace decided to open a music school in Denver, and Jane was going to organize and so they did. They left. And in late 1915, they show up in Denver, Colorado. The other thing that happened was is that Jack Street had shown up in Denver, Colorado, and he was the love of her life. She didn't want to live with him. She didn't trust him. But she was sharing custody with her son with him. And so that may be another reason that she organized there.
1: I was wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit upon what conditions were like for household workers in Denver because as you explained, while you know Jane Street may have been motivated to uh, you know sort of punish the, the 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 people of Capitol Hill the the, the families of of Colorado's uh, elite that the the household she wasn't the, the, she, the, the household workers had cause to to uh, to protest and to demand better conditions because as you explained they weren't exactly being treated decently.
0: No, and they were not protesting either. Uh, This is all Jane. Jane brought this to their attention. Um, You have to understand that in the West, when women went West um, and they needed household help, it was generally you you got a Mexican woman or you've got uh, an indigenous woman. Many of the Native American women worked as domestics for women on the Front Range in Colorado. Many of the Mexican women or Indian women worked as domestics there in Arizona. In California, it was the Mexican women. And so that was, I I think, that was a very common thing, especially when Eastern women went west with their husbands, whether it was with the military uh, because they were stationed there um, or it was because they were some sort of big, you know, uh, corporate, they had a corporate job with these robber barons. And I'm using the term robber baron, which we were taught about when we were in school, but they never taught really what that meant. You know, we were always told, how great it was, our industrial period. And it was great. We had these great companies of formed, but they don't tell the story of how it happened and who was doing all the work. And it's the same thing with these maids. So in in Denver, Colorado, and in the front range, the, the maids that were originally used were Irish. And they were brought in there because the miners who came from Europe, they were Western Europeans, were mainly Irish. They were Irish and Cornish. And they showed up in the, on the front range uh, in what mainly the Black Hawk Central City District, which is it's a, a fun place to go visit. I mean, it really is, but it is where it used to be called the richest uh, uh, square, uh, square mile on earth. There was more gold dug up there than anything. They At one point, they, they uh, were mining silver, but they went back to gold. And so you had all these Irish in there, and you had their daughters, and you had some wives, and those are the women that came first. And people hired the Irish. You know that was very typical in New York. They would work in the East. they would work as domestics. That was very common. And so, as the miners became more militant, which they did, uh, so did their women folk. And the women in Denver didn't really like that. They didn't like the maids being pouty or even talking back to them. Uh, it, it, what they had was a feudal system. And the when I see a feudal system, you can look like, even at the South with slaves, that was a feudal system. You can go all the way, take that all the way back to Europe. And, of course, the upper class had their servants. And you just didn't question your master. You you were basically in servitude as much as slavery could be without being a slave in Europe. So those notions just kind of transcended. that They just did. And it was accepted. So... In um, the 1870s is the Chicago Fire, and when the Chicago Fire happened, uh, the women in the front range were very dissatisfied with their Western European maids who had attitudes, and so they made a deal. The newspapers actually made a deal to bring in these women who had been misplaced because of the fire, and they were Scandinavians. And one of the things I found out was is that when I think of my grandmother again who went into this marriage that she shouldn't have been, she became a maid. is that they were told with Scandinavians that if you didn't have a husband, good girls became domestics. And that's what she did. And so they brought in all these domestics from Scandinavia, and they were much more docile. They did exactly what they were told and so forth. They didn't question it, even though they were very unhappy. Um, the circumstances were they worked Many, many hours. There was no number of hours that you worked. You worked until your mistress told you you didn't need to work. You could go to bed for that night. Their sleeping arrangements could be in a cellar. they could be in an attic. There could be a maid's room. You were not allowed to have any company. You could read or sew in your room. Many times I found this. You were fed the table scraps, what was left over from the family. Um, they were the the women, Many of the women who did this, and Colorado women are very well known for being um, very progressive. You know, their suffrage movement and so forth, they really were movers and shakers. And a lot of them were just fantastic. But there were many women who couldn't have done this had they not had their maids to run the household. And many of them did not look at their servants the same way they did as the other women, they were trying to help and move them up. That's what's ironic about this. They, they weren't looking at that lower group of women who and men, too, for that matter, who were, doing, who were existing to help them succeed, and they were trying to succeed in getting rights for women. And so the irony of it is just amazing. And I... I uh, I had fun going into these households of these movers and shakers and seeing how many servants they had. On average, they had about four. They lived in mansions that were about 6,000 to 7,000 square feet. Um, I looked to see if they were Scandinavian, Irish, what they were. And most of them had Scandinavian maids at this time. Um, And these girls just didn't know they could do anything to change it and Jane came in and she was very tricky in the way she organized but once she did organize they saw that what they had was not good they were unhappy but if, if they left and wanted to go to another job it was just like miners or men who were working in the logging camps you had to go to a an employment agency you paid that employment agency a dollar to find you a job and so and the employment agencies were really working for the women that owned the mansions So they they just weren't getting ahead. And then they were tossed out on the street if they did anything wrong, if they served a meal where they spent too much money on the meat. Or they were tossed out. In one case, a girl was tossed out just simply because the mistress didn't want to pay her. So she fired her and came up with, you know, some excuse and tossed her out. Things like this happened all the time. Um, Some people sent their daughter because they could not afford to keep their daughter's. And the daughters grew up in these houses, and they were sexually abused. We found out that that actually uh, they did a study, and it actually took three years to get the study done. It came out in 1914, 1915, by the labor secretary then, whose name was Wilson. And uh, they found out that domestic servitude was the most dangerous profession there was of all women in the United States. And it was because of the treatment that was going on behind closed doors in these mansions.
1: So, how does so uh, that's Jane, where Jane started? <laughs> so, so how does Jane organize? Because to me, it's it's one of my favorite parts of the book is is reading about the ways in which she does it. What what does what does she bring to it, and and how does she go about you know taking all these people who are in these individual homes everywhere and really disconnected apart from this you know employer controlled service and 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 you know fuse them into a movement uh, uh, to to fight back against this
0: you know this this part i I had to go over this time and time again in my head. She tells how she did it in her letter to Mrs. Elmer bruce in nineteen seventeen in February nineteen seventeen she writes this letter because Mrs. Bruce is in Oklahoma and she's wanting to start her own union and Jane is telling her how to do it and I read this letter over and over and over. Wasn't quite sure. Even when I read it, I thought I had the gist of it. But then I, I went into the Denver newspapers and I looked for her ads. And, I find, and it finally became much more clear. Jane had to become a maid first herself. She knew nothing about being a domestic. Her family wasn't domestics, So that's how we knew she, No, she was definitely going after this particular group to, to show something with these mistresses. So she worked in a home for about three months learning what it was like. And and during that course of that, she met a few people, not a lot, because, again, the maids didn't have much free time. Even on Sundays, they were expected to be there to prepare Sunday dinner. So what she did is she started using the newspaper to post ads. So she would pretend she was a mistress, and she would run an ad asking for a housekeeper. The housekeeper would reply either through a letter, uh, usually they did it through a letter, Uh, that she was interested and and when Jane met with her then Jane would would have already found another ad where a mistress asking for a certain kind of housekeeper so Jane in effect became like an employment uh, agency so the housekeeper would show up with Jane Jane would say well I am really not the person here's the one I want you to go to but meanwhile I want all your personal information and so in that way she started getting to know who these these people were, these girls were, who were looking for work. And when a, and she said, you know, if this didn't work out, come back and find me. Well, what she started doing was the, the women then, when they, they would start coming to these little meetings, and these were just information meetings, she let them vent. They would stand up and they'd vent about the situations that were going on. Um, Jane rented an office space in this old building that they would come up to. Grace would play piano music They'd come in and make them feel really, really good. And as they walked in, Jane would hand them a card. And on the card, she would ask all these questions like, you know, what's the name of your employer? What's the name of your employer? How many kids are in the house? How much does she pay you? What are your duties? Do you have any time off? Do you get any recreation? You know, just this whole list of information about that particular household. And she started building this card system because she has this analytical mind. And the card system becomes a cudgel against Capitol Hill's women, it didn't take them long to find out that Jane is, they called it initially, a blacklist. So then (laughs) when someone comes to look for a job, they go through this card file. Oh, no, no, you don't want to work for her because this is what she does. You know, and so eventually the bad mistress can't get anybody to respond to a job. And no one is going to the Denver employment agencies. They're all going to Jane. And Jane's membership grows to well over three hundred in a very short amount of time.
1: That, that's what I love about it is that she basically takes the the employment agency approach and inverts it. <laughs> so now all of a sudden, it's the yeah, employers that are being judged, not the brilliant. employees.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was brilliant, and and of course the Denver women now they know they don't want anybody to know that they're a bad mistress. I mean, this is out there. The reporters have jumped on this, and the funny thing is she has an ally that she didn't want. I thought. To me, this was one of the most fun parts of the story. But the head of Denver Society, the woman who controls everything, is Louise Snead Hill. She lives in the largest mansion right down from the governor's mansion. Her husband made all, actually her husband's father, made all of his money in Central City Black Hawk Mining District. They are so wealthy. And she came from this ridiculously wealthy family from the South. She marries into the Hill family. And she becomes the reigning queen of society, only she's very fast, very fast and loose. And uh, the other established matrons don't really think too highly of her. They want her husband's money, but they know that Louise Neal is really kind of naughty. And Louise is always in the news. She always makes sure she's in the news. And she forms a relationship with Fred Bonsall, who owns the Denver Post. And so all these write-ups are always glowing about her. And the Denver Post, they send reporters to these meetings that Jane is doing. They're not supposed to be there, but Louise uh, Louise Neal Hill's maid, uh, her name was Cora Cowan, another fascinating person, and she goes to these meetings as a maid with all the other maids. And of course, Louise finds out what's going on, and she's kind of enter she she enters into the story. Uninvited because she takes the side of Jane Street. Louise has no problem with her domestics. They all stay with her for years and years and years. And so, but everybody else is having trouble with their maids. But Louise doesn't treat her the same way, even though it is a feudal system in her home. She treats them with respect, but they are the servant and she is the, the mistress of the house. And so you get a conflict going on between Louise Snead Hill. And the rest of the Capitol Hill ladies that is another part of the frame going on while this is all going on. And it just makes it much more fun. But the newspaper gets the dope and that gets printed. And now all of Denver knows what's going on. And these mistresses do not want their names used. And so the reporter is saying the first initial like Mrs. T or Mrs. S, you know, that's what's going on in the story. But um, they covered Jane fairly well. And Jane wanted to be in the newspapers. She wanted this publicity. And so I was able to get so much information from that. The the Bureau of Investigation hadn't even entered yet. This was all done because of newspaper reporting and then what Jane was writing herself, plus the fact that the IWW men began getting involved. And that opened up another thing, but they wrote stories for the Solidarity and the Industrial Worker, which were, again, two um, arms of the newspapers of the IWW, and I was able to get information there, too, from the other side.
1: I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon the involvement of the IWW men, because this, as you explain in your book, this dramatically changes the dynamic of what's going on, that initially you have Jane Street... Uh, you know, doing a lot on her own, connecting with these domestics, and she's having an incredible degree of success in terms of these early stages of building it. And then when you start having the the men from the IWW showing up uh, to, you know, to help in some, it, 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 they are helping in some ways, but in a lot of other ways, they really, you, she finds herself at war with them as much as she does against the, the matrons of Denver society.
0: There's a little bit of a history to this. Um, anyone who does any labor history involving in the West, particularly the IWW, knows that there was something called – there were mixed locals. And what those were, there was not a trade local. The one thing about the IWW is they accepted all trades, even though you would have a, a, a mining local or you would have a you know, cannery local or whatever – but in Denver, they had had mixed locals, which means they were a bunch of different trades because there weren't enough to set up their own union. And there had been some mixed locals in Denver up to 1915. The, they had had a huge free speech fight in 1914 that had pretty much, it had failed. I mean, it, the, the, the local dispersed by 1915. But the, there were hangers on there. There were men who were still there in Denver. And so they were very excited to see that this uh, local had started with these women. And Jane had um, met a man named Charles Devlin, who actually becomes the father of uh, two of her children. And she didn't marry him, but he became, she was never going to get married again after her experience. He became the father of two of her children. And he is an organizer when he comes in for hotel workers. And he comes to see her. He was just fascinated with what he was hearing about her, and he instantly fell in love with her. And so he goes ahead and he organizes a local there, a mixed local, and as well as a hotel workers local while he's there. And it brings in some of these men who had been there before, and they had um, Western Federation of Miners Views. And when I say that, the IWW was very inclusive they were inclusive. It didn't matter what your gender was, what your skin color was, or your trade, your ethnicity. But because they had been formed from the primarily from the Western Federation of Minors, some of these old, they're not prejudices, that's not what I want to say, these old notions and viewpoints transferred with them. And so they still saw women not necessarily as equal partners, although they were supposed to. Um, they still wanted to take uh, dominance uh, in as far as the labor news goes, labor organizing, including in Denver. And what Jane had done is she had decided to um, – she was going to emulate someone like Jane Addams. Jane Addams is very famous for Hull House, which she organized um, in the East. And Jane Addams, what she had done is she had uh, provided a place for women to come when they were out of work. She had t- supplied child care. She had supplied education. She'd done this for a lot of immigrant women. And she was also um, very much, uh, she uh, abhorred what happened in Ludlow. And uh, there was a, a running, little running battle that had been going on between the Denver Capitol Hill women and what Jane Addams thought. They were horrified that Jane Addams did not see their viewpoint and even sent a special emissary to meet with Jane Addams to make sure they saw their viewpoint, which Jane didn't. But Jane Street was trying to emulate that, and so she decided that the girls needed their own clubhouse to do the same thing. She'd already gotten some teachers who would volunteer their time. She'd gotten a lawyer who would do work free. Um, they could leave their luggage there when they were looking for jobs, so they didn't have to cart it around. And more than anything, it was a place to meet other people. So the IWW men were welcome, and they would come after these meetings, and they would sing songs, and they would go to picnics together. And, they just had a great time. Well, this all worked fine uh until the um, she loses her somebody breaks into her the the union headquarters, which was now also a clubhouse, and her I wanna I'm gonna call it the blacklist file, even though she called it later said it was not a blacklist, it really was. Someone stole the file. The employment agencies sent people in. They'd already sent in white slavers to try to get these girls to become prostitutes because they were just one notch above prostitutes. And so the white slavers and the employment agencies were in cahoots, and the mistresses were in cahoots with the employment agencies. So they broke in and stole the file. And Jane gets another clubhouse. And she realizes she just can't have men walking in and out of, her, of the clubhouse. It's just not safe for the girls. And here she lost her file. They had to recreate it. So she rents a house. And this time, no men are allowed. And these guys don't like that. And the backstory on some of this is they, one particular one, his name was Philip Ingalls, led a little group who especially did not like the fact that Jane was soapboxing on his corner, where he soapboxed, that they were receiving this attention. It's called viral syndicalism, and basically, this is, you know, you get in more into more of the academic, because I didn't come up with this term at all. Uh, Dr. Francis Shore did. But basically, even though they see her as equal, or Jane sees herself as equal, the men did not observe her that way. They were observing her through a gendered lens. They 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 think that basically, this is for males, where they are, and so they start fighting her just a little bit. They start balking, and, they, and it grows. They see her as um, one person I talked to said that Jane was overstepping the traditions between the sexes because she was overshadowing. She was in the news, and the men weren't. And so once she gets that clubhouse, this new one, and men aren't allowed, um, she has very serious trouble. She's betrayed, and she's betrayed by IWW men. And meanwhile, they're sending all this information to Big Bill Haywood, who was the general treasurer, secretary of the IWW. And he was like, he was a legend among the IWW. And I was kind of concerned as I wrote the book because I found out things about Bill Haywood that aren't so rosy, and he didn't look so good. But I just went ahead and I presented the warts and everything. Um, He betrays her. And um, by then, he's having her investigated. And it starts turning south
1: really, really fast. Now, this is, uh, though very quickly, it goes from beyond being just uh, an internal struggle or a struggle between Jane and the uh, male hierarchy of the IWW, you start to have this uh Greater this broader complication overlaying it, which is uh, America's uh, uh, participation in the First World War. Yeah. You have uh, the IWW being uh, targeted as, as by uh, the federal authorities, and and, and this begins to, f- to further complicate matters for for Jane.
0: It sure does, and you know I'm getting ready to do. I'm going to be doing a talk for uh, the. History Colorado, the Center for Women's History. And the topic of that is, was she an activist or was she a revolutionist? And, you know, you you look at this and you're trying to determine that. I mean, the IWW was a revolutionary organization. They were 100% socialist. Uh, they wanted to turn capitalism on its head. And when I'm explaining this to people that I know, I'm, I, you know, I'm saying you've got to understand that these people who came from Europe most of the, many of them were socialists they were, the the finns and the swedes they, they came from socialist countries, and this was used to and so it's no surprise that you had these views and then you see what the capitalists are doing, how they're abusing the people that are working for them and so um, in fact, Oklahoma, the state of Oklahoma in nineteen oh seven was one hundred almost one hundred percent red, and that's not red republican that was red socialist so this this was a a movement that was going on in the United States prior to World War I. And, of course, when World War I starts, they're looking at it. What is it? There's an old saying, it's a rich man's war, but it's a poor man's fight. Mm-hmm. And these guys, all these immigrants who are here, they don't want to go fight in this war. And many of these men were miners. They were lumbermen. And they don't want to fight in this war because they're having to take sides with Russia, and Russia had been their enemy in their homeland or they don't want to take sides with England because Ireland had been their enemy for centuries. And so you have all these biases and prejudices going on to begin with. And so the war is ramping up. Haywood has a dilemma because his, his, the IW Devs are asking him, do we go fight? I mean, we're gonna have, do we register? Because we know there's now going to be a Universal Registration Day, which was June 5, 1917. And he doesn't want to make a statement on it. And so here's Jane. She's just a red-blooded American girl brought up in Indiana and then furthermore in Arkansas, comes west. And she, when the, when the war effort starts, she actually says, and it comes out in the newspaper, you know, all these guys that are having to leave Denver, you know, we we at the, the Domestic Workers Union, the House Union, we'll be glad to step in and help his police women or nurses or whatever to help on this war effort. And Haywood does not like that, one bit. But yet he has not given a statement to anybody on what to do. Uh, he was he was a coward in that regard. He was very much a coward. He was worried about his own skin. So what he told his own uh, executive board was let's just put our poetry and our literature, our publications, but we are not going to come out and tell someone they cannot Enlist. We're not going to do that. Let that be your own conscience. If you want to be a, you can you can sign up and be a conscience conscientious objector if you want to do that. And a lot of men did that. But Jane doesn't get that message, and she's looking at it as she would being born in America. And so, coupled with what these particular IWW men, the information they're sending Bill Haywood, number one, that her clubhouse is really a house of prostitution. Or that she's mismanaging her books, Um, then they send her this article about the him this article about her volunteering the housemaids to help in Denver, and he just he really he loses it, and so when that happens, um, she loses her charter, and the charter was everything for her union, her local. And some of these same men go in, and they, they, just, they break into the house that no men, where no men are allowed, and they tear up her charter. And now she has nothing. And the thing is, is the drums were beating. I mean, it was like this giant tsunami was coming. And you have the feeling, you know, it's a European war. The United States had no business being in it. Now, I'm just giving you that as my opinion. We had other, We had money that could be made in our munitions factories, definitely, in the gold and silver mines, the zinc mines. uh, We had wheat. You know, it was a way for all these people to make money, and so we went to war, and it was not a popular war. But the the media immediately helped the, the media, which in large part was owned by a lot of these corporations. They went to work. And uh, you talk about fake news. There was fake news. And it was that the IWWs were Germans. They were working with the Germans. They were receiving gold from the Germans. And you get this first red scare. And the term Reds hadn't even really been used yet. The Bolshevik Revolution happened later, and not when the IWW formed. They were Marxists, yes, but, you know, they weren't what they were making them out to be. And so all of a sudden they become, they become a homeland enemy a threat to the homeland and so this happens all at the very same time that jane loses her charter the men now they're getting out of denver they're all hiding they're going they're going to go fight where the last line of of uh, the line is and that is in arizona arizona had the copper mines and the copper was so essential to the war effort and so the, the mixed local these guys all say well we're going to head to to uh, Arizona and see what we can do to help all the copper strikes that were going on predominantly in Arizona, but also in, in Montana. And um, Jane goes there. Uh, she has no choice. She has to leave. She no longer has a union. She goes there to meet with a member of the executive board who happens to be Frank little. He was the chairman of the executive board and she presents her case to him. And he, he had read the, the propaganda about her. He had read the part about her having the virus of patriotism. That's the name of one of my chapters. And he tells her what to do. And then within three weeks, he's murdered. He's hanged in Butte, Montana. And then, it, then when that happens, they realize the government, the federal government, they're still not watching Jane. They don't know about her. But they round up all the radicals in the United States. I think it was on September 5th, 1917, like at one o'clock in the day. I mean, it was this. It was one hour, one particular t- time because they kept it very, very secret. And they rounded up all the wobblies, which is were what IWWs were called. And when they went into those union halls, one of the things I found out when I was doing my research for um, Frank Little and the IWW, the the IWW were they kept so, they were meticulous with their records. They made carbons of everything. You'd walk into an IWW office, they had file cabinets, they had posters, they had propaganda, they had pamphlets. You know, they had so much literature and, and everything of everything they'd ever written. And so when the Bureau of Investigation raided these, these union halls all across, across the country, especially in the West, they got all that literature. They got all those names. And so then... They start um, watching, basically spying on Americans. The Sedition Act was not passed, I believe. I may have my date wrong. I think it was February 1918, but the Espionage Act had already passed, and it had passed right at the very same time that Jane is in, in Arizona meeting Frank, and the Espionage Act gave the uh, postmaster uh, the right to pull an email that looked like it might have been um, traitorous, anything that looked like sedition. And so you're losing your freedom of speech. Your freedom of speech has started right there. This is a lot about freedoms uh, that we are supposed to have. And then by the time the Sedition Act passed, which was an addition to the Espionage Act, it passes, I think, in, I want to say February, um, you are no longer allowed to say anything about the United States government. I mean, you look at what all everybody says today, right or left, about the president, the government, the military, whatever. Oh, you could not do that at all. You couldn't say anything. You couldn't criticize. You couldn't say, don't sign up for the draft. You couldn't do anything. Or you would be arrested. You would be jailed for sedition. It was an incredible loss of liberty. And the Bureau of Investigation gets involved trying to catch these people who are going um, there? They are causing sedition in the country, and specifically the members of the IWW. So, once the men start writing to Jane and they're being watched, then all of a sudden they realize that Jane is an IWW and they start watching her too. And so now she's got that to contend with. So, she's already had. Uh, you know, the men betrayer in the IWW, she's had Big Bill Haywood, did not stand for her, treated her terribly, and, and it's karma. He gets his in the end. Um, and his uh, one of his guys that he sent down there to spy on her and get information. Um, and then you've got the Bureau of Investigation here after her. And even when it gets down toward the end, all during this time, she's being told by members of the IWW that her motherhood is secondary to, quote, the revolution. And she now has two children with Charles Devlin, although she's not no longer with him. But she loves those children so much, and they keep telling her, you, you, you can't be a mother and do this. You can't be a mother and do this. And one in particular, he's a, quite a character. The Bureau of Investigation, I read many reports on him, said he was probably the worst of the worst. He was not a good person. And he starts playing... Head games with her, um, he berates her, he compliments her. There's an a sexual assault, um, and she lets him get to her, and he convinces her that she needs to get. This is how she can get back again with the IWW. She can be received again. She can start her union again. But you need to do this, and that's her undoing in the end. That was her undoing.
1: One of the things that really fascinated me, though, was that even though she has this incredibly disillusioning experience even though she has this uh, you know she she has this you know those incredibly horrific treatment at the hands of the IWW, the, the male organizers, the, the national organization, you make it clear that she never gives up on, she, she never is so disillusioned as to abandon her, her, her radicalism, uh, to abandon her commitment to it. You describe how, you know, going into the 1920s, she, she you know, remains uh, associated with locals, that she remains very committed to her ideals for the rest of her life.
0: She really does, and and it, it was fascinating because the Me Too movement had started while I was researching this. The Me Too movement had really gotten more vocal, and you were hearing, I think, Kavanaugh hearings were going on, you know, and it's, who do you believe, and do you believe her, or do we believe all women no matter what they say, or do you believe him, and and then you know other people in the news started dropping off, you know, like Al Franken, and it just kept going. And Jane really was assaulted. She was assaulted, and she was betrayed. And yet you never, ever hear her say anything about being a victim, nor would she say she's a survivor either, because that would indicate that she was weak and had been a victim. She was a fighter, and she fought constantly. And I was just sitting here thinking as you were speaking, what kept her going was she wanted to be heard. She she wanted to be heard, and I think that is why she even continued to the point that she did, because she does end up getting arrested and she loses her children I think it was because she wanted to be heard. She wanted to be significant and be heard, and she continues it. When she does get her children back, of course, she never marries again. She never has any wealth. Uh, she, her children are all dysfunctional as a result of this, and her, her saving grace as far as a mother is as a grandmother. She raises her grandson, and, I mean, remarkably, he, he sends me thank you notes. She doesn't call me or text me. I get these handwritten notes. She raised him really well, but he, she, she continues to write and she continues to espouse what she believes to be right or wrong. And it's funny that you said that because her grandson just sent me a poem that I had never seen. I had all of her documents. I had all of her, her um, all of her poetry, all of her short stories. And there's actually one that's in the book that I added in the appendix about a, um, a WPA project where women, uh, she's trying to help women, but she fails because they're really not interested. But she wrote a poem during World War II. It was probably about 1943, and it was about specifically about the Nazis' oppression of the Jews, what they did to the Jews, and how they were blaming their actions because the Jews were oppressing them. And she's basically saying, you know, you just want another scapegoat. It's a powerful poem, and it is now on display in the Simon Wiesenthal Center in California. And I didn't know that, hmm. and I would have included it in the book if I had known. Hmm. Um, I mean, she continued that empathy for people and groups who were downtrodden up until she died. She was constantly writing, hmm. and um, up until she died, and so I I, I had so much joy in holding all of her short stories and all of her poems. Some of her poems are silly. Some of her very much her internal angst that she was having, particularly about love and about aging. She wrote a lot about aging where she wasn't, you know, she was once very, very pretty. And then I have a picture of her in 1945. You know, she was, she was five feet tall and she'd gotten plump. Um, but she writes about all of this, what all women kind of identify with plus lost love. Hmm. But, um, and Jack Street puts her through the ringer. It's that, you know, you know, there's a, two chapters in the book where it didn't end with just Jack, what he does initially, you know, having another wife and so forth. The, the polygamy or the bigotry. I don't know whatever you would call it. He had not bigotry, bigamy. polygamy, bigamy. There we go. I have it right now. But he, um, he, he was quite a criminal. And uh, he brings that criminality to Denver, and that makes national news. And so that is another thing that affected her and put a, um, a cloud over her organizing.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Yes. Uh, I've got one book. This is totally different. I mean, it's totally unrelated to what I normally do, but it's my COVID book. Um, I had just about finished a book that's called The Pink Dress Memoir of a Gyrex Girl. Uh Gyrex was a trademark for these beauty queen makers here in Texas, Richard Guy and Rex Holt, who ended up owning the Miss Texas and Miss California pageants and sent five Miss USA's to win Miss Universe. I was their first one. I was the first Gyrex girl. And uh, it was not fun. But anyway, it's it is a um, it is a story, um, it's a, a sad and happy story that Obviously, my editor who is my editor uh, and mentor is Chuck Rankin, who was the former editor of uh, University of Oklahoma Press. And he's thrilled with this book. He's reading it, and he's he's helping me with it. That one I, I will have finished here in, in a few months. My next one, though, there's always, like I said, a personal con- personal connection. And I am actually going west, and I am writing about a man named Hank Bedecker, who was a lawman in Wyoming. He actually escorted Butch Cassidy to prison there, um, and Butch Cassidy came back to see him. You know, this tale about Butch dying, like the movie has him over in South America. Well, family says no, this is another family connection. And so I'm writing this basically the biography of Hank Bedecker because he is known about some other particular things that were famous, and then the Butch Cassidy will be the frame going around it. And I'm going to have to um, probably... I'm not going to expose, that's not it. I'm going to present my argument about Cassidy coming back. Um, I'm pretty good with research, and I know there's a lot of good research out there, but what I have found out, and I found it out with Frank Little, is that somebody, one academic, and you know this, you're academic, you know this, that somebody will find something, they'll write it. And then the next academic or scholar who comes along will take that piece of information, And instead of researching it on his or her own, they go ahead and incorporate it into their their own research. And so if you get some information wrong, it's just repeated. And I had to undo so much on Frank Little and the IWW. I believe in going to those primary sources, you know, the horse's mouth. Uh, If I do, if I am looking at a scholarly journal, journal or a book, I will look immediately first thing at their sources. If they're primary, I go straight to those sources myself to try to assess them. If they're not primary, I go to that source to see where they got the information. I'll track it down. And, I again, I happen to have letters and papers and things like that, that belonging to the Bedeker family that no one else has. And so um, um, my editor is very excited about this. And it will probably take me another two years because COVID kept me at home and I couldn't go to Wyoming and Colorado where I need to be again, hoping to get loose to where I can walk the story so to speak, and collect that information that I need and do some more interviews to make sure that I'm on the right. Now, if I find out something differently, then obviously I'm going to tell what the truth is. But my book is primarily about Bedeker, and the Butch Cassidy thing is is the frame around the story, which will get people interested, except I will have to give you one one, one little note here. I was flying to – going to Riverton, Wyoming, and I had to – get my Southwest Airlines flight there in time to Denver to catch this pedal jumper to Riverton, and the plane had been like three hours late because somebody got the door stuck. And so they moved me on the a Southwest Airlines flight to the very front row so I could get off fast to make it to the pedal jumper. And they sat me next to this girl, and she said, so she was in her 30s, and she said, you know, so why are you going to Riverton? I said, well, I'm, going, I'm an author, and I'm going to go do some research. She goes, well, what are you researching? I said, "Well, I'm researching Butch Cassidy." And she looked at me blankly, and I thought, "Oh my gosh." I said, "You've never heard of Butch Cassidy? No. Have you heard of the Sundance Kid?" No. Have you seen do you know who Paul Newman and Robert Redford are?" No." <laughs> I said, "Oh, OK, I something just sick? I thought, "Oh my gosh, I'm old, or we just have this cultural deficit in our country. We really have this deficit. And I thought, you know, she's just going to go. Home. She's going to look right there on her phone, and she's going to Google it real fast and find out who they are. I thought, why am I writing this? But I want to tell the story because it's a good story. So that's what I'm working on next.
1: Well, it sounds like a, a, a fascinating uh, adventure ahead of you, and um, perhaps when you're finished, we can have you back on the podcast.
0: I would enjoy that,
1: uh, Jane uh, Little Botkin. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
0: Thank you. Thank you.